This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter in the series, Bad Sports, where I detail sports-related crimes. So far, we've covered hockey, soccer, and bodybuilding. But I couldn't let this series end without discussing a case centered around America's favorite pastime, baseball. Every year, when springtime rolls around, baseball fans become excited to head out to the ball fields to watch their favorite players. There's nothing like sitting in the stadium on a warm summer day with a cold drink and a hot dog while rooting your team on to victory. It's a popular pastime for Americans, with approximately 70 million fans attending major league games each year. But over the years, some teams have found ticket sales somewhat lackluster. Whether this was due to the team having a few bad years in a row, resulting in fans losing hope for a winning season, or a turn in the economy that had spectators staying home, or any other reason, team owners and management had to come up with creative ways to fill the seats. One way to do this was through promotional nights. If you've been to any kind of sporting event recently, you probably know about these types of special promotions. Ticket holders may receive a gift like a t-shirt or a bobblehead doll, or sometimes it's a special event taking place at the game, like fireworks or a celebrity throwing out the first pitch. Some of these promotions are a hit, others not so much. In 2010, the Cleveland Cavaliers held a Snuggie night. Each person in attendance received a Snuggie, those one-piece pajama-like blankets that were all the rage for about 10 minutes. It was a huge success, and the pictures of the fans wearing their Snuggies was adorable. One strange promotion that wasn't so well-received was the Hagerstown Sun's pre-planned funeral night. One lucky winner was awarded with a funeral package, including a casket, embalming service, and death certificate. Uh, fun? The show Seinfeld even made fun of promotional days at the stadium, with New York Yankee employee George Costanza suggesting events like John Voight Day and Snow Tire Day. But a real-life promotional day at a Major League Baseball game would start out bad and get worse over nine innings. Rival teams who came to not only play a game, but to settle a beef, combined with a large crowd of rowdy fans and way too much alcohol, turned a summer baseball game into an event that would go down in sports history books as something not to be believed. This is Chapter 4 of Bad Sports, Ten Cent Beer Night. In 1974, Cleveland, Ohio was a city on the decline. Founded along the banks of the Cuyahoga River in 1796, Cleveland had once been an important shipping hub for coal and iron ore. With the completion of the Ohio and Erie Canal in 1832, the city was ideally positioned as a shipping center connecting the Ohio River and Great Lakes with the Atlantic Ocean. It would become an important commercial center by the early 20th century. John D. Rockefeller would found the Standard Oil Company in Cleveland in 1870. Early automobile companies and other manufacturing industries would open factories in the city, providing jobs for Cleveland residents. Immigrants from Eastern European countries and migrants from the rural South came in droves to take jobs in Cleveland factories, and the city's population grew. By the 1920s, Cleveland ranked as the U.S.'s fifth largest city. 
Cleveland continued to prosper after World War II, and it would eventually become synonymous with sports. The Cleveland Indians, the city's major league baseball club, won the World Series in 1920 and again in 1948. Their football team, the Cleveland Browns, would become one of the winningest teams in American football history, winning eight titles between 1946 and 1964. Jesse Owens, who became famous for winning four gold medals in track and field in the 1936 Olympics, is a Clevelander. By the 1950s, Cleveland was known as the City of Champions. But by the 1970s, manufacturing began to decline and unemployment rose. Over 600 factories were shuttered by 1970. High unemployment combined with inflation, the savings and loan crisis, and other economic problems caused Cleveland to experience a severe recession. The Cuyahoga River, which had once contributed to Cleveland's prosperity, became so polluted by manufacturing waste dumped into it that it caught fire several times. In 1952, the river fire did $1 million in damages to boats, a bridge, and a riverfront office building. Another river fire in 1969 did much less damage, but led to investigations and then the creation of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Water Act, and other environmental organizations and reforms. In the midst of all these disasters, it was no wonder that the Cleveland Indians were having trouble filling the seats at their home games. On top of all of this, the team itself wasn't doing so well. Leading into June 1974, their record sat at 22 wins and 25 losses. But an even bigger problem might have been that their stadium had been built when city officials and residents alike believed Cleveland would continue to grow and prosper. Cleveland's municipal stadium, the first to be built entirely with public funding, was planned to hold over 74,000 fans. Of course, at that time, the stadium's planners didn't expect Cleveland's population to shrink so rapidly. The city lost over 170,000 residents beginning in 1970. On May 13, 1974, the Indians hosted the Boston Red Sox with a hometown crowd of only 4,200 people in the stands. The Indians' executive vice president, Ted Bonda, called a meeting to gather ideas of how to increase attendance at games. The company was in the red, and something needed to be done quickly. Several ideas were floated, some old and some new. One suggestion was to hold a 10-cent beer night, Fans might not be rushing out to purchase tickets to watch a team with a losing season, but just about anybody would pay a dollar to see the game if it meant that they could purchase beer for a dime. The normal cost for a beer at a game in 1974 was 65 cents. Now, this might seem like a bad idea in hindsight, but to be fair, the Cleveland Indians had held a successful and well-attended beer night three years earlier. Back then, the beer had only cost five cents per cup, and all had gone well. The Cleveland Indians' head office approved the idea and scheduled several 10-cent beer night promotions for the second half of the season, the first to be held on June 4, 1974. Little did they know it would be a game that would live in infamy. In order to set the stage for what happened on June 4, 1974 at the Cleveland home game, I must first take you to an away game the Indians played in Texas just a few nights earlier. On May 29th, Cleveland played the Texas Rangers at Arlington Stadium. The night did not go well, 
Incidentally, the Rangers were holding their own 10-cent beer night that evening, but this did not contribute to the problems that arose. Those were all the players doing. Rangers outfielder Tom Grieve even commented later that it was obvious their beer night drew a large crowd of college students who perhaps came more for the cheap suds than to watch a ball game. At least a 1,000 University of Texas at Arlington students attended and loaded up on beer in the ninth inning. Of course, now, most ballparks cut off their beer sales at the end of the seventh inning. But back then, that wasn't a rule. And Grieve remembers seeing the students sitting in the right field seats long after the players had left the field for the night, enjoying their beer until the stadium lights were finally shut off. The problem between the players began in the bottom of the fourth inning, with the Rangers up to bat and two men on base. The next batter hit a double play ball to the Indians' third baseman, who stepped on the base at third and then threw the ball to second to tag out Lenny Randall. But Randall slid hard into Rangers' second baseman, Jack Brohammer. The Indians retaliated at the bottom of the eighth, with pitcher Milt Wilcox throwing behind Randall's legs. Randall finally bunted, and Wilcox fielded the ball and tagged Randall out. Randall hit the pitcher with his forearm on his way to first base. The first baseman, John Ellis, then punched Randall. Now both teams swarmed onto the field and began fighting one another. The fight was quickly broken up by the umpires, but on the way back to their dugout, Ranger fans began pelting Cleveland players with food and cups of beer. Catcher David Duncan was held back when he attempted to jump into the stands to duke it out with the fans. Even so, nobody from either team was ejected from the game, and it continued on, with the Rangers winning by a score of 3-0. This might have been the end of things, except for a couple of large egos or mouths, depending on how you look at it. The Rangers were scheduled to play Cleveland at their home field the following week. Right after the game, a reporter asked Rangers manager Billy Martin, are you going to take your armor to Cleveland? To which Martin, always an outspoken one, replied, nah, they won't have enough fans there to worry about. To assure that the bad blood between the two teams remained right up until game night, Cleveland sports radio talk show host Pete Franklin stirred up Cleveland fans calling for revenge against the Rangers daily on the airwaves during the week before the game. Now, under normal circumstances, all of this team-inspired rivalry could be considered harmless fun. Everyone who's been to any sporting game has probably heard boos from the stands when the rival team takes the field. But this isn't considered any real threat to players. It's just all part of the competitive spirit. So, there were a couple of factors leading up to the events of that June night at the ballpark a group of amped-up fans at a game against a rival team who'd very recently brawled with their hometown boys, a community deeply affected by the economic downturn and in need of a diversion to escape their troubles for an evening, and unlimited cheap alcohol that would add fuel to the fire. Some theorized that even the weather, unseasonably humid for early June, and the fact that there was a full moon on June 4th contributed to the insanity. Have I set the stage enough? Are you intrigued and ready to hear this ridiculous story? Okay, then hang on to your hats. The goal of the 10-cent beer night promotion was to bring Cleveland fans to Municipal Stadium, and it worked like a charm. 
On their best days, the Indians sold about 12,000 tickets, but over 25,000 fans showed up to watch the Indians play the Rangers on June 4, 1974. The majority of the attendees were younger than usual. College students were home on summer break just in time for the game, and large groups of them purchased tickets in anticipation of cheap entertainment and even cheaper beer. A ticket in the bleacher seats cost only 50 cents. One of these college students would go on to become an NBC News broadcaster and the host of the long-running talk show Meet the Press. Of his attendance at the game, Tim Russert was quoted as saying, I went with $2 in my pocket. You do the math. Most of these young men were seen purchasing the limit of six 12-ounce beers. To clarify, the six-beer limit wasn't over the entire game, just the amount that could be purchased at one time. People would purchase multiple cups of beer and then pass them along to friends and return to the line for more. Men, women, young and old purchased multiple beers at once, leading to many fans becoming inebriated early in the game. Other reports state that many fans showed up to the game already under the influence of either alcohol, marijuana, or both. They were ready for a party. There was no mistaking this. One other factor at play that I haven't yet mentioned was that at that time, in most places in the U.S., the legal drinking age was just 18 years old. Now 21 is the legal age in the U.S., but the laws didn't change in most states until the 1980s as a response to an increase in drunk driving accidents. The Texas Rangers took an early lead in the game, scoring their first run in the second inning. Fans, clearly feeling tipsy already, became louder and more unruly. The first incident of the night took place during the second inning. An unruly fan took to the field, and it wasn't a frat boy, but a middle-aged woman. She ran to the Indians' on-deck circle, lifted her top, and flashed her breasts at the crowd. As the crowd started hooting, the umpires arrived to pull her off the field. She then tried to kiss umpire crew chief Nestor Chilek, who was having none of it. By this time, contraband firecrackers brought into the stadium by fans had been going off every few minutes, adding to the cacophony of the increasingly rowdy and drunken crowd. Like I mentioned, there was no limit on the number of beers a person could purchase throughout the game, so the lines for beer were relentless. The concession stands couldn't keep up with the demand, and the lines were clogging up the stadium walkways. So a decision was made to drive in Stroh's beer trucks and serve beer right from the taps. The trucks were set up outside the outfield fence, with a couple of tables in place to take money and distribute cups of beer. This, however, was not a very well-thought-out plan, because the stadium didn't have staff to man the trucks. They decided to pull two teenage girls from another concession stand to cover the beer sales from the trucks. One girl was to pour the beer, the other to take the money. Okay, a couple of things here. Number one, maybe that was legal in 1974, but when I was working in the bar and restaurant industry, you had to be 21 years old to serve beer. Maybe in 1974, you could serve beer at 18, but I believe these girls were even younger. So now you have two young girls serving beer to a bunch of drunk baseball fans. What could go wrong? Before long, the girls were overwhelmed by the rowdy crowd and simply abandoned their post and left. Now, with nothing stopping them, fans began pouring their own beer. Some didn't even bother with the cup, pouring beer directly from the hoses attached to the taps into their mouths. Ten-cent beer night now became free beer night, at least in the outfield. 
and this was only the third inning. By this time, the Rangers had a sizable lead in the game. In the third inning, they scored their second run, and by the fourth, the score was 3-0. Tom Greaves scored his second home run and was just approaching third base when the first streaker of the night made his debut. In the 1970s, streaking, or taking off all your clothes and running through a public place, often while flashing a peace sign, was a thing. Why? I really don't know. It just was. Ask your parents. If you remember, I told you of another streaking incident in episode number 80. That occurred at the Oscars in front of live television cameras. The first of the 10-cent beer night streakers, and there would be many, ran out of the stands and into left field. Apparently, a security guard saw him starting to disrobe and tried to reach him before he jumped over the fence. Perhaps this is why he was seen running nude through the left field, still clad in one sock. He then, and this pains me to say this, slid into second base. Ouch. He was still able to run past the stands and kept going out of the stadium, or wherever he ended up. He was never caught. I hope he had a backup change of clothes stash somewhere because the pile of clothes he came with stayed in the stands. The Indians were up to bat in the fourth, and they desperately needed a hit. Leron Lee hit a line drive to pitcher Fergie Jenkins, who caught the ball with his stomach. Fergie fell in pain, and the Indian fans began clapping and cheering, calling out, hit him again, harder! The Indians finally scored a run in the fourth inning. Now between every inning, 20 to 30 people would run onto the field, some naked. Umpires did all they could just to keep spectators off the field. In the fifth inning, a father-son team jumped the fence, dropped trow, and mooned the Rangers outfield. More hoots and cheering came from the fans, and the umpires once again went into action to round up the offenders. That had to be a proud day for that family. Now along with firecrackers, people brought out cherry bombs. One was lobbed into the Rangers' dugout. The umpires had to evacuate the bullpen for the visiting team's protection. One reporter described the antics of the crowd as, quote, a night of blatant stupidity, unquote. More fans began to scurry onto the field, most likely emboldened by the fact that there was no way the security guards could keep up with the crowd. There were only 50 security guards to monitor over 25,000 fans. No additional backup had been brought in for the game, and now it was too late. The drunkenness of the crowd was clearly evident at this point. When one or two people would jump from the stands and run through the field while being chased by security, the rest of the crowd would cheer and encourage the runners. Those runners would then quickly jump back into the stands, where they'd receive high fives and even hugs from total strangers, before sometimes being carted away hand over hand by scores of fans. Kind of like a reverse stage dive. Crazy. An Indians batter was called safe on third in the fourth inning, and Billy Martin argued with the umpire over the call. This, as you can imagine, was all the already out-of-control fans needed to take things to the next level. Billy Martin was no stranger to controversy and not shy about voicing his opinions, loudly. As he strode out to third base yelling about the call, fans began throwing full cups of beer at him. Martin then exacerbated the situation when on his way back to the dugout, he faced the crowd and blew kisses at them. Now the crowd began throwing anything within reach onto the field. A hail of beer cups, hot dogs, rocks, and even batteries taken from portable radios littered the field. Rangers first baseman, Mike Hargrove, would later report that he'd been pelted with 20 to 30 pounds of hot dogs. He was also nearly hit 
by a half-full gallon jug of Thunderbird wine. An announcement was made over the stadium's PA system that said, Please do not throw anything onto the field. Which was met as you might expect. More beer, food, and garbage flew from the stands, halting the game until it could be cleared by ground crews. A Sisyphean task. And yet, the game continued. Another woman jumped out of the stands and began waving to the crowd. Perhaps remembering the entertainment from inning two, the crowd encouraged her to strip. She did not, but when ushers arrived to escort her off the field, she attacked them. She was brought to the ground, and the crowd began booing and screaming, Police brutality! Now exhausted by trying to keep up with all the shenanigans on the field, the umpires pretty much gave up chasing the streakers and concentrated on those who were a bigger safety concern. Streakers bounced out of the stands and leisurely stripped and left field before running off once again. The pile of clothes in the outfield grew larger. Of course, this served to amp up the crowd even more. Then the fans began to dismantle the stadium. Padding on the left field wall was pulled off in large chunks. The grounds crew had to abandon trying to keep up with the litter on the field to try and save the rest of the wall. The security teams and umpires worried that pieces of the dismantled wall would be used as projectiles that could harm players or spectators. By the seventh inning, it was clear that the inmates were running the asylum. More rational fans and families with children made a beeline for the exits. Additionally, it was noted that Team Vice President Ted Bonda and other front office executives made their retreat at this time as well. Incredibly, the game continued all the way to the ninth inning. And perhaps even more incredibly, the Indians were finally able to rally from behind to tie up the game in the bottom of the ninth. The score was 5-3 to three when the Indians scored two runs to tie the game. It became very obvious that the fans left in the stands at this point were no longer there for the game, if they ever were. The game was tied up at the bottom of the ninth, with the Indians at bat, and the winning run on second base, when a Cleveland fan would set off a chain of events that would bring the game to a screeching halt. A 19-year-old named Terry Yurkett climbed from the bleachers onto the field and ran up to Rangers outfielder Jeff Burroughs. When interviewed later, Terry said that he was just compelled to try and grab Burroughs' hat. As the cap was flipped off his head, a startled Burroughs turned towards Terry and either kicked at the young man or got tangled up in his own feet or both and stumbled. Billy Martin and the other Rangers players saw the man approaching Burroughs, but the field sloped in such a way that it was impossible to see below the outfielder's knees while standing at the dugout. Burroughs fell out of sight, and Martin, believing his outfielder was being attacked, sprang into action. Let's go get him, boys, Martin said, and ran to the outfield bat in hand, followed closely by his players. When they reached Burroughs, they found him unharmed, but they now had a bigger problem. The sight of the uniformed rangers striding onto the field like the 300 caused the fans to also pick up arms and descend onto the field. Brandishing chains, rocks, and clubs made out of pieces of stadium seats, over 200 angry drunk fans confronted the 25 Texas Rangers. Even as the already greatly outnumbered players tried to fight off the crowd, more people began jumping out of the stands to join the brawl. Others hurled bottles and other debris from the stands. The Indians' manager Ken Aspromonte, saw the Rangers becoming overwhelmed by the crowd and sent his own players onto the field in defense of the other team. But by this time, the crowd was in a frenzy. Fists were flying along with objects at whoever was in front of them. 
fans were assaulting their own ball team, along with the Rangers, and even each other. A full-scale riot had erupted in Municipal Stadium. All the while, the ballpark's organist continued playing, and sportscasters Joe Tate and Herb Score kept calling the play-by-play on the field. Tom Hilgendorf has been hit on the head. Hilgi is in definite pain. He's bent over, holding his head. Oh, this is an absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy. I've been in this business for over 20 years, and I've never seen anything as disgusting as this. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. I just don't know what to say. I don't think this game will continue, Joe. The unbelievable thing is people keep jumping out of the stands after they see what's going on. Well, that shows you the complete lack of brain power on the part of some people. There's no way I'm going to run out into the field if I see some baseball player waving a bat out there looking for somebody. This is tragic. The whole thing has degenerated now into just... Now we've got another fight going on with fans and ball players. Hargrove has, has got some kid on the ground and he is really administering a beating. Well, that fellow came up from behind and hit him was what happened. Boy, Hargrove really wants a piece of him, and I don't blame him. Look at Duke Sims down there going at it. Yeah, Duke is in on it. Here we go again. They've stolen the bases. The security people here are just totally incapable of handling this crowd. They just, well, short of the National Guard, I'm not sure what could handle this crowd right now. It's unbelievable. Just unbelievable. People go into the seats, and others jump down to take their place. The bases are gone. Yes, three bases were literally stolen off the field. They were never recovered. Umpires and security guards first prioritized getting the players and managers out of the stadium and to safety as quickly as possible. Martin and Aspromonte led the players, some injured, out of the dugouts and through the connecting tunnels. Once the players were off the field, some of the crowd dispersed, but others remained, who now turned their attention to the ball fields and stadium. They began stealing not just the bases, with the stadium seats and anything else they could pry loose. The pandemonium continued for another 30 minutes, with Cleveland police arriving in force to disperse the crowd. The stadium lights were shut off, which seemed to shoo off the last of the rabble-rousers. All the while, the stadium organist continued playing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Perhaps she believed the old adage that music calms the savage beast. Indians reliever Tom Hilgendorf was struck in the head with a chair and taken off the field bleeding, as was an umpire. Head umpire Nestor Chilek had already been cut in the arm by a thrown rock when a hunting knife landed just near his leg, blade down. He then made the decision to forfeit the game and run for safety. Dozens of fans were injured in the melee as well. Reporter Dan Coughlin was either brave or foolish as he attempted to interview fans during the riot. He was punched twice in the face for his trouble. Other reporters had hightailed it into the security of the locker rooms where they recorded team managers' reactions. Billy Martin said he thought Burroughs was in danger when they ran onto the field. Maybe it was silly of us to go out there, but we weren't about to leave a man on the field unprotected. It seemed that he might be destroyed. Aspromonte was angry and characterized the night's events as the decline of civility. It's not just baseball, he said. It's the society we live in. Nobody seems to care about anything. We complained about their people in Arlington last week when they threw beer on us and taunted us to fight. But look at our people. They were worse. 
I don't know what it is, and I don't know who's to blame, but I'm scared. Umpire Chilek was even more enraged after attempting to control the mob all night and then witnessing events descend into chaos. Animals. You just can't pull back a pack of animals. When uncontrolled beasts are out there, you gotta do something. The final tally of 10-cent beer night was 60,000 beers sold, 19 streakers, 7 emergency room injuries, 9 arrests for disorderly conduct, and 3 bases stolen. The following day, a press conference was held. The question everyone wanted answered was regarding the folly of 10-cent beer night. Ted Bonda was asked if he thought it was a foolish decision. Had it been mishandled or not thought through well enough? Why wasn't there more security for such a large crowd? Why hadn't there been limits as to how much beer an individual could purchase? Bonda, without good answers and exasperated by the questions, finally threw up his hands and said, Gentlemen, you're giving beer a bad name. But American League President Lee McPhail would say, There was no question that beer played a part in the riot. Cleveland general manager Phil Segge would blame the umpires for losing control of the game. In response to this, the Sporting News editorial said, Segge's perspective might have been different had he been in Chilak's shoes, in the midst of knife-wielding, bottle-throwing, chair-tossing, fist-swinging drunks. But not everyone blamed the beer. In fact, beer nights were not even banned. The Indians hosted another 10-cent beer night that same summer. On July 18th, Cleveland played the Oakland A's with a crowd of over 41,000 in attendance. Beer was still only 10 cents a cup, but this time the stadium had more than four times as many security guards on duty. More importantly, each ticket holder over 18 years old received only two 10-cent beer tickets. The game went off without a hitch. Cleveland lost to the Athletics 3-2. At the end of the season, the Indians came in at fourth place in the AL East with a record of 77 wins and 85 losses. Manager Aspromonte lost his job and was replaced by his own first baseman, Frank Robinson. The fiasco that was 10-cent beer night in Cleveland has gone down in the history books. This surely was an example of a perfect storm of circumstances colliding to create one hell of a mess. If there had been less bad blood, or more security, or certainly less alcohol, it would have just been any other ball game. But as it stands, Clevelanders now wear the history of that night as a sort of badge of honor. Attend any home game at their new stadium, Progressive Field, and you'll see fans wearing replica 10-cent beer night t-shirts and hats. Cleveland has bounced back from its low point in the 1970s and 80s. In the late 1990s, the city reinvigorated itself as a world-class hub of sports and entertainment venues. The Gateway Sports and Entertainment Complex, opened in 1994, now houses not only the 35,000-seat Progressive Field, but also Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, where Cleveland's NBA basketball team, the Cavaliers, plays. In 1995, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum was opened in downtown Cleveland. In 2007, Cleveland was dubbed the Comeback City. And the Cleveland Indians? Well, in 2016, they returned to the World Series, the first time since 1997. They played against the Chicago Cubs, who hadn't been in the series since 1945. 
The Indians took a 3-1 lead, but the Cubs rallied back, winning the final three games in the series, four games to three. In 2017, the Cleveland Indians set a new American League record, winning 22 games in a row. On September 8th of that year, they won their 100th game of the season, only the third time in history for the team and ending the regular season with 102 wins. So I guess the point is, never count Cleveland out, because somehow, they keep coming back. They're scrappy that way. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. What a story, huh? I want to thank Lauren and Michael from the True Crime Guys podcast for playing the part of sportcasters Joe Tate and Herb Score. Thanks, you guys. You rock. Check out their podcast for more great true crime stories. Just look for the True Crime Guys wherever you listen to podcasts. Time to give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporters. They are Dina B, Emily S, Jasmine P, Monica W, Crystal D, Trisha D, Jasmine B, Catherine H, Aaron H, and Saska A. Thanks, you guys. I really, really appreciate your support, and your perks are on their way. This month's random drawing winner from all patrons is Charity Lang from Gladstone, Oregon. Congratulations, Charity. Your prize pack will be sent out to you soon. Thanks to everyone for coming back week after week and listening to my true crime stories. If you have any case suggestions, you can send those to me at esther at truecrimepodcast.com. You can find all the links to our social media, merchandise, and sponsor discount codes at our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>